Okay, I remember very, very, very vividly the first church service that I attended uh, after my conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I remember the first service that I went to uh, after my conversion. I think I've, I've said to you in the past that I was converted in my early 20s uh, when I was in Inverness. And the first Sunday after that, I gave lots and lots of thought to what church I should be attending. And I researched it and looked at it and spoke to people and then made my decision, jumped in the car, went to the church, went and sat down, could not believe what I experienced or what I heard. You see, I had heard preaching before in my youth. I had heard ministers give talks, but never anything like this before. I went into this church, sat down, and the minister spoke with serenity. Like, and he spoke with fire, and he spoke with passion. And I'll be honest with you, like, I was riveted. Like, I was transfixed, because this was not the kind of wishy-washy, kind of, you know, apologetic sort of speaking that I'd been used to in the past. This was something different. I was transfixed. What was this? This was authority. And it was authority from the Word of God. Now, uh, I'm reckoning many of us in our youth, in younger years, maybe we've experienced that sort of thing, authoritative proclamation of God's Word. So why, why begin the sermon there? Well, the first thing I've got to say to you this morning is this section of Scripture is more important than it looks. Are you with me that it doesn't look like it's a particularly important two verses of Scripture? Now, I've said to you in the past that Matthew's gospel is split into, it's got five sections of teaching in Matthew's gospel. And each section of teaching ends with a transition verse or a very small transition section. So we could be thinking that's all we're dealing with this morning, right? Yeah, we could all be thinking, okay, this is a nice little transition. We section two verses, moving us from the Sermon on the Mount to something else. Little transition section. I want you to understand it is much, much more than that. Much more than that. This morning, Christian friend, you are confronted with authority. And what authority? The very authority of the Son of God here as he teaches from the word of truth. This is the authority of Jesus. And the first heading that I want us to think about is this. I want us to think about the form of Jesus' authority. The form of Jesus' authority. So before we dig into this, can I invite you to do what I always invite you to do? And that is to have it in front of you. I know it's only two verses, but could you please have it open in front of you? So it's on page 8, 12, Matthew 7, verse 28, 29 form of Jesus' authority is the first thing. We know the situation, do we? Right? We're, all, we're all happy. We all know what's happening here. Do we? Right? Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. So he has just finished preaching. You know, that great manifesto of Christ-like living. He's just complete. There's a sense of completion here in the text. But then what is it that we're wrestling with here? What, what do we see? If you look at verse 28, we see how the sermon was actually received. Don't we notice that? That this sermon, there are all these people listening to Jesus and they they react with just shock, like it's amazement or astonishment. Now, 
before we get to the big question of why they were astonished, do you know what I think we have to do? I, ha- I think we have to just say a word about who is actually amazed because maybe some of you, if you're very switched on this morning, are you switched on this morning? Maybe if you're switched on, you see a problem? Does anyone see the problem? Do you see the issue here? Like look at verse 28. Who exactly does scripture tell us was astonished? The crowds. I wonder if anyone remembers how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount begins with a kind of division and a separation? Do you remember that or not if you were here? Like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sees the crowds in the distance. And so he takes his followers up the mountainside to teach his people. His, do you see the separation? So there was the crowds were over there. The, the unbelieving people, the people just interested. And he takes his followers up the mountainside. So, so you see the question. Do you see the, the, the problem? Like how is it that at this point, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are amazed and astonished. How does that work? Well, do you know what we could do? We, we could go into all the suggested ways of reconciling the text. I'm not going to bother with that. Tell you why, I just don't think it's that complicated, to be frank. You see what's happened here? Lots and lots of people have just simply found Jesus. Isn't that what's happened here? Yes, Jesus originally took his followers up the mountainside to teach them. What's happened? The crowd, slowly but surely as time has gone on, the crowd is one by one, they've found where Jesus is. They've joined this big group. And now, in front of us, in our mind's eye, we've got this vast multitude of people. I mean, there's so many mixed group of people around Jesus and they are all, they are astonished and they are all amazed. Then we get to the big question, right? Why? Like, why are these people amazed? Well, if you look at verse 29, have a look at verse 29. What do you see? You see, yes, that they are astonished at the level of authority in Jesus' teaching. You get that? But here's my question to you. Who is mentioned in verse 29? Do you see maybe the boys and the girls here can follow along as well? If they look at verse 29, who... Yeah, I heard it mumbled there. <laughs> Who's mentioned in verse 29? The scribes. Now, how, how on earth does that help us, that the scribes are mentioned here? Um, when I was much, much younger, a younger man, I spent a summer working in a law office in Inverness. I worked in a, a law firm for a summer. And like apologies to the lawyers in the room. <laughs> but it was not the most riveting of jobs I've ever had in my life. Maybe you can see why, <laughs> can't you? Um, it was in a law firm, a law office, there's an awful lot of reference work to be done. In a sense, is that not a really big part of a lawyer's job? Do you see it? To check precedent. Like a, a lawyer, lawyer doesn't just prosecute a case or defend a client. What does he do or she do? They do that, but they do it checking precedent, don't they? They have to refer to past cases, cite previous findings. Don't they have to do that? Like, let's look back to the case in 1974, Pearson versus... I don't know whoever it might be. You see it like checking different cases. Now, this is what I need you to understand. See, in the ancient world, that was very similar to the job of a scribe. Like we all know, don't we, that in the first century, 
the religious establishment had set up this big kind of matrix of rules that surrounded scripture, hadn't they? Like there was lots of extra biblical rules um, that the Pharisees had. I'll give you a couple of buttes that I read about this week. So in the ancient world, in, in the first century, there were rules about what sort of fuel you were allowed to burn on a Sabbath day. Then there was, here's an even better one, there was rules, regulations about where you would wear your belt when you prayed. Okay, so all of these kind of extra biblical rules. Now, what I need you to think about, though, is not just that it was the scribe's job to teach about that. I need you to appreciate the method that they used. How did a scribe teach? The scribe always taught referring to other sources. Do you follow me? Like a scribe always appealed to higher authority. So you imagine I'm a scribe in the first century world. How do I teach you? I say, Rabbi A says this. Rabbi B says this. Rabbi C says this. But friends, we're going to go with Rabbi D who says this. Now, do you, do you see the idea? If you do, don't you see how it helps you at this moment? Because look what Matthew says in verse 29. Look at it. He doesn't just mention scribes. He contrasts that form of teaching with the authority that Jesus displayed. Friends, do you see? Why was this crowd astonished? Why were these people amazed? Because here in Jesus was one teaching, teaching without derivation. His teaching was not derivative at all. Do you see it? He'd never cited other sources. He didn't appeal to a higher authority. He was one teaching, even on eternal matters, significant matters, and teaching on the basis of his name, on the basis of his understanding alone. And a man called A.B. Bruce, famous commentator, he says this, sums it up beautifully in a little nutshell. He says, the scribes spoke by authority, and our Lord spoke with authority. They spoke by authority. Our Lord spoke with authority. Now, if you've been here even just for one or two of these sermons in the Sermon of the Mount, can, can I ask you this? Do you recognize that that element of Jesus' teaching, personal authority, do you recognize that that is true yourself? Do you? Like, like we're finishing the Sermon on the Mount, right? So if you even today cast your mind back on some of the sections that you've thought about, could you be able to pick out instances where Jesus' personal authority is on display? If I was to put you to the test just now, would you be able to pick out any instances of personal authority? Can I help you out? What is that formula that Jesus uses right throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember what it is? Remember he says time and time again, I think six times he says, truly, I say to you. That's his formula. Now, we maybe think, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't sound that amazing. That doesn't sound great. But you paid it with a formula that the prophets used in the Old Testament. What was the prophetic formula in the Old Testament? Even the boys and girls could tell me this. The prophets used to say, thus says the Lord. Do you see the difference? The prophet said, thus says the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I say to you. Like, you see the conviction? The personal authority? Or what about those contrast sections we looked at? There was a whole host of contrast sections. Jesus contrasts himself with the Pharisees. Do you remember how they began? Come on, you can, surely. 
Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now you think about what that is. The Lord Jesus Christ is declaring true interpretation of the law of God. And he's declaring on his own, all of himself, I say to you. And do you know what the best one is? Love this one. This is the best one. Remember what happened last week? Were you here last week? You know, the wide was his house upon the rock. Remember that from last week? Look at it again. Look at verse 24. I love this. This is special. Look at verse 24, the beginning of it. Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and so, and so on. Right now, what you're not seeing there that I think is really important is the emphasis in the original language. So, so get this. In the original language, the emphasis is on the word mine. The word mine is emphatic. Everyone who hears these words of mine, my words, my words. Friends, you begin to see it. Like, why was this crowd utterly shocked and amazed at Jesus? Because he was unique. They'd never heard anything like this before. This was a person who did not base his authority on higher authority or anything else. Here was a man speaking with certainty. Here was a man before them speaking with power. Here was a man preaching on all the authority of his own. So we see here the form of Jesus' authority. Second thing that we also see here is the grounds for Jesus' authority. The grounds of it. And really, in this heading, I want us to think about this. The question like, what, what gives Jesus the right to do that? I mean, maybe some of you are asking that. I mean, he's making these bold claims, personal claims, real conviction here. Like, what's that based on? Like, what do we learn here about his identity? How dare he? What gives him the right to speak like this? Well, a few years ago, Hollywood produced a number of films. About the turn of the century, it's about this. They produced a, a few films all around the same time, same period. They all used the same plot structure. It's not like Hollywood to be unimaginative, is it? But they all use, all these films use the same plot structure. They, they use the same device. And these films, they all use the, the device of an intertwining storyline. Intertwining. Maybe you already understand what I mean, but I'll give you an example. Maybe some of you have seen the film, it was in 2004, the film Crash. Like I've mentioned it in the past. Uh, who's in it? Uh, Matt Dillon, Sandra Bullock, that sort of thing. The film Crash. And you see what I mean about intertwining stories? If you've seen that, what happens in that film is that you get a little snippet of a storyline. And then it goes into a seemingly unconnected story. And then there's another unrelated story. It's all getting a bit confusing. Here's the, here's the spoiler for you. If you've not seen the film, I'm just about to ruin the film for you. But there's all these unconnected stories. And then right at the end of the film it actually materializes, it's revealed that those stories were connected and they were actually linked. You can see at the time, but they were intertwining stories. Now, I'm saying to you that that's what happens in the Sermon on the Mount. That you have elements of Jesus' authority put forward, little vignettes of Jesus' authority put forward in the Sermon on the Mount, that ultimately, by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they intertwine to show you who Jesus really is. And maybe you're Maybe confused about what I mean. I'll show you. Let's do the first one. 
We have in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' authority as Messiah. Now, can I, can I ask, are we all here? Are we all acutely aware and familiar with what I mean by Messiah? Are we? I mean, the football fans in the room. Oh, let me use the football fans, although I speak about football. Let's do this. What the rest of us don't know about the football fans just now in the room, because there's quite a few of them, uh, is that this is a time of real expectation and hope for the football fans, because this is the transfer season. Okay, so all the football fans in here are hoping that their club is going to make a big signing. Like, they're hoping that whoever it might be, Hibernian or whoever, are going to sign Neymar or Salah or someone. And what's going to happen is in the new season... Like this player is going to come in. He's going to do all these magnificent things for the club. Well, isn't that kind of sort of thing that we're dealing with, in a sense? With the Messiah? You, you understand what I mean, at least, do you not? In the ancient world, there was this huge expectation with the people of Israel. Wasn't there? Like the Old Testament had promised someone was to come. Figure was going to come. Someone's coming. Someone, uh, ah, from God... And someone who's going to come amongst them and do marvelous things, great things. The Messiah was going to come. Now we get to it. Did you notice how Jesus Christ views himself in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus Christ does not just talk about the great things that God is going to do. The Lord Jesus Christ actually views himself as that saint one. He actually views himself as that very Messiah. Take chapter 5. Think back to chapter 5. There was that very, very odd expression in chapter 5. Isn't it odd? Jesus begins like this. He says, I have come. And you sort of think, what? You seem to think of yourself as on a mission. You know, I have come. But how does that phrase end? I have, actually, I have not come. To abolish the law and the prophets. Think about the claim, friends. He then says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Aren't you bowled over? Can you imagine hearing that? What a claim. Jesus views himself as that person the people of Israel were waiting for. Like he views himself as the one who through his life and his death and his direction is actually going to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. You're asking, how can he speak with such authority? Because this man is the Messiah of God. But then we've got to add a second seemingly unrelated idea here. Because the authority in the Sermon on the Mount is the authority of Jesus as, wait for it, as judge. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you probably agree with your minister at this point that the last few weeks have been pretty heavy going. Uh, a London City Presbyterian Church, haven't they? The last few weeks, there's been a lot of talk about hell. Oh, the last few weeks, as we end the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of talk about destruction. The gates leading to destruction and houses being flattened in the last, right? If you've been here, it's been heavy, 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 heavy hitting stuff. Do you know what amazes me about that as I prepared it? It's not so much that God promises that there will be a judgment day. 
What amazes me is the role that Jesus says that he plays on the judgment day. I would ask you to look at verse 23. Have a look at verse 23. I'll give you a second to find it. Now think about the basis. What is the basis on which people will be judged in the last, in verse 23? What's the basis of judgment? Do you notice what it is? What everything is about? Look what Jesus says. He says, I never knew you. Isn't that incredible? Like there's two groups of people on judgment day. There's the people who knew Jesus. There's people who didn't know Jesus. He, isn't it, isn't that a claim? Like relationship with Jesus here, he, he says, is the determining factor in people's eternal future, eternal destination. Isn't, isn't that incredible? It's all about him. And if that's not amazing enough for you, then look one verse above it. Look at verse 22. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Look at how that verse starts. Jesus says, on that day, so we're talking about judgment day, on that final day, many will say to who? Look at it. On that day, many will say to me. I mean, what? Do you see the claim? It's not just the the relationship with Jesus is the basis for our eternal future. Who is he? He's saying that he's going to be the judge on that final day. He's going to be the judge on that, on that final day. Isn't it incredible? Like Jesus is not just speaking about what God is going to do in the future. He is speaking with the authority of the very person who is going to be seated on the throne of judgment. He is Messiah, but he is the everlasting judge. And then the last little vignette of this, we see also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks with the authority of God. And here I've got to doff my cap to what all the commentators and all ministers want to emphasize at this point. And that is the fact that in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a really robust doctrine of God. If you've been here for the sermon series, you know that that's true, don't you? Like Jesus really teaches you about your God, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? We know God as creator from the Sermon on the Mount. We know God as sustainer. You know, the one we can ask for for our daily bread in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that God, time and time again, you must have noticed that God is Heavenly Father. Bang, bang, Heavenly Father, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. That's beautiful stuff. I mean, that's soul-enriching stuff. Again, do you know what strikes me, though? It's how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ claims equality with God. This man on this hill teaching claims equal status with God. And this is so radical and so fundamental to the Christian faith. I want you to work with me on this, okay? So would you look back to one verse? Would you look at chapter 5, verse 11? I've said one verse, but we're going to look at 11 and 12. Turn there with me. Even the boys and girls can do it. You can finish your worksheet later. Go back to chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Okay. Now, do you see in verse 11 what's in view? Would you agree with me it's persecution, Christian persecution of you? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying to us effectively, isn't he, to his followers, blessed are you when others revile you. Right? So we're thinking about Christian persecution, yes? Then look at the end of verse 12. What is the parallel that is drawn? So they also persecuted the Old Testament prophets. 
So he's drawn this parallel between his followers and the Old Testament prophets and the way that they were persecuted. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You think it through. Why were the Old Testament prophets persecuted? We know the answer, don't we? We know God's word. They were persecuted because of God. They came with God's word and they were persecuted because people didn't like what God... They were persecuted because of God. Everyone got it? Now look again at verse 11. What does Jesus say? Blessed are you when you're persecuted. On whose behalf? My account. Do you see... That there is not just this parallel between Christ's followers and the Old Testament prophets. That is a parallel Christ is drawing between himself and God. You persecuted on my account, my account. Do you see it? Christ Jesus here is, is claiming to be equal with God. Claiming equal status with God. And surely it's at that point that all of these little bits of information about Christ's identity, do they not intertwine? Can I ask you, friend, do you not now stand back from the Sermon on the Mount and see who this is? Who is this man who taught with such authority? He is the Christ. He is the Savior. Now listen to me. This young man, think of it, younger than I was. This young man sitting on that hill teaching that young man, who is he? He is God. He is God made flesh. And then we must end with this. We've seen the form of authority. We've seen the grounds of authority. We have to end the sermon series with the response to Jesus' authority. Because, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, didn't I? I mentioned that the people were, the crowds were astonished. Yes, they were astonished. They were amazed. All of this that Jesus was saying, the authority, and they were amazed. A couple of very quick things about that. The first is to realize that that was a very, very common response to Jesus, wasn't it? If you know your New Testament and Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, isn't it true that lots and lots of people were amazed by Jesus' ministry? Isn't that right? Like he would heal somebody. People were amazed. Wow. And remember that phrase in John chapter 7, no one has ever spoken like this man. So that's the first thing. You've got to think that's a really common response, to be amazed and astonished at Jesus. The second thing is to appreciate that that there is a very sincere response to Jesus. So the word in the Greek, the word in the original language for astonishment is a very deep word, a very significant word. It's actually a word that's quite difficult to find equivalent in the English language for. But you've got to understand that that crowd, those masses of people, they didn't hear Jesus and were not mildly surprised. You understand that, right? I mean, these people listening to Jesus, they were utterly floored. I mean, these people, they were dumbfounded. And so because of that, I want to end this sermon series with a question for everyone here, for, for the kids, for those who are a bit older than the kids as well. Friends, what is your response to the Sermon of the Mount? And what is your response to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask that first of all to the Christians, those who are born again, those who claim to be in Christ Jesus. I'm asking you as a Christian, what is your response to the Sermon of the Mount? I mean, we've been in it for a long time. We've been in it for many weeks, many months. We've looked at it in some depth. Have you given any thought to what your response will be?
Surely our response, even today as Christians, will be to renew our dedication to our King. Isn't that it? Isn't that our response? To resolve to view the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Isn't that it? That even this week, even this afternoon and this week, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. We study it. We read it again. Do we not? We pray over it. We study it for ourselves. We ask God to shed light on where we need to change as Christians. All for his glory. Isn't that going to be our response, Christian friend? But then for you in this room who are not born again. Like for those in the room who are sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm born again because I don't even know what that means. For those who are not trusting in Christ Jesus, can I ask you, what is your response to the Sermon of the Mount? What is your response to Jesus? Is it the case that you're unmoved? Really? Like you've, you've heard some of these sermons, you've heard maybe quite a lot of these sermons and you know, you're sitting there and you're just largely unaffected by what you've heard. She's like, yeah, I'll take it, leave it, and just forget about it. Can't, is that you? Or is it a little bit different for you? And could you actually say, even someone who is not trusting in Christ, you come through the door here this morning, and could you say, no, I too am astonished by Jesus. Is that where you're at this morning? Amazed by the Sermon on the Mount. Amazed by what you've heard. Amazed by Christ. Is that, is that you? I want you to hear this loud and clear. That ain't enough. It ain't enough. Like what scripture makes so abundantly clear is that Jesus Christ does not just want our astonishment. Jesus Christ does not just want us to be amazed at his teaching and amazed at his person and amazed at his authority. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to believe in him. He needs you. He wants you to take hold of him by faith this morning. And so, what do we do? We leave the Sermon on the Mount for the time being with a plea. If you are not trusting Christ Jesus, if you are not born again, will you not look to Jesus today? I mean, what is stopping you? Consider the identity of this man. He is God. Will you not trust in him? For the forgiveness of your sins. Who is he? He is the Christ. He is the only savior from sin. Who is he? Who is he? He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven. And all authority on earth. Friends, let's bow at the throne of Christ Jesus. And let's pray. Lord God, again, we praise you so much for this sermon. We thank you for the grace that abounds and is evident all the way through these chapters of Matthew's Gospel. We thank you that you have taught your church well. Lord God, we confess our sins that we have not given due attention to this sermon. Over these weeks, over these months, even as we studied it, we recognize, Lord God, we are so infrequently fighting against our immorality, our, our, our greed, our ego, our tendency to judge and criticize. Lord God, as Christians, we ask that you would help us to recognize where we stray. But Lord God, we look to you and we recognize that you are deserving of worship. And Lord, we recognize that you are the king. And so we do ask that you would please unveil that true identity of Jesus, maybe for the first time to some in this room, that more voices would recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Amen. Right.